We are, uh, we're, we're in Matthew's gospel, and we are just about to conclude chapter 12. And as we conclude chapter 12 in Matthew's gospel, then we are going to jump into the Old Testament minor prophet, Hosea. We're going to spend about four or five weeks in Hosea, and then we have a couple of off weeks, and then we'll um, head into the Advent season. After Advent, we're going to start in the Old Testament book of Daniel, and we'll spend part of the new year in Daniel. So just a, a heads up on where we're going from a pulpit and teaching perspective. Um, crossing borders. If you, if you have ever traveled internationally, you know the importance of that little booklet that you cannot lose, right? Your passport. Whenever you're entering a new country or whenever you are re-entering your own country, there's this moment that comes when you kind of work your way up the line and you work your way up to this podium that is vested with the authority of the nation that you are trying to enter. And there's this moment where you kind of like straighten up and you get your act together. And if you've got kids, you get their act together as best as you can. And you walk up and you present this thing. And depending, like if you do not have the right credentials as you enter this podium and come up to this agent who's vested with that kingdom or nation's authority, you, you're going to find yourself, best case scenario, stuck. Worst case scenario, you're going to find yourself in some trouble. Hey, we're going to take you back to a room and we're going to ask you some more questions. The passport there identifies a person's citizenship. That's the function of a passport. The kingdom of God which Matthew speaks of the kingdom of heaven often in his gospel. Rarely does he actually call it the kingdom of God, but in this text, he does call it the kingdom of God. It requires a different sort of credential. It's actually a way, like way more involved and way more intrusive. Uh, the credential that's required by the kingdom of God is um, one of such loyalty that your way of life and your words, our words, are being consistently examined and we are consistently being called up to fidelity and to loyalty to this kingdom. Here's the big idea. Here's where we're going this morning. The reality is that there are two senior kingdoms governing the world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And you and I are citizens of one or the other, but not both. And our way of life and our words signal which kingdom we belong to. And just to be really clear, one is superior. Only one can be superior, and that is the kingdom of God. But these two kingdoms are clashing, and we feel this in the world that we live in. Our way of life and our words, they function like a credential. Um, and, and the way that I'm, I'm using credential here, it needs some definition. Uh, here is what I am not saying and what we will never, by God's grace, ever be saying in this community, that our way of life and that our words earn us citizenship in the kingdom. We do not enter the family of God by keeping up with God's righteousness or holiness, but rather it's through our faith that we look to him and he imparts his righteousness to us. And it's by grace that we are saved through our faith. Here's what I am saying, that our way of life and our words, they signal which kingdom we are already functionally belonging to. Let's jump into the text and let's 
Ask Jesus to make things more clear for us, which he will. Mark, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37 this morning. Page 767 in the Black Bibles around the room. I really want to encourage you all of life, bring your, bring the scriptures, bring your physical copy, turn your app on, somehow be interacting with the word of God. Don't just take it from me as I'm saying it this morning, but follow along and examine the text as we look at the text. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, to Jesus, and he, Jesus, healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul. It's a funny name. We'll get to it here in a little bit. It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Jesus casts out Satan, he is divided, I'm sorry, and if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, this is a central verse here in this text, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit or the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's a euphemism for himself, will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, where we're about to read here, verse 33 is connected uh, acutely to what I just read. Jesus says, verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. He's speaking to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, your heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. This is God's word to us. Pray with me. Father, would you open our eyes to see what your spirit is saying to your church Would we understand this text accurately? Would it inform and comfort and rebuke and correct and strengthen us? However it needs to land on whichever heart in the room, would it land squarely where it needs to land? We submit to you and your authority in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, that was a lot. There's a lot going on there. Kind of hard to find our way through that text. So that's what we're going to do is just work our way through this text. Summary, Jesus's uh, his activities, they're being weighed. They're being interpreted by those who are in charge of Israel, by these religious rulers within Israel. They're known as the Pharisees. And Matthew will begin to draw out the spirit of God's activity in Jesus's ministry. That's what is happening here. And so like the Pharisees, anytime we, anytime someone encounters Jesus Christ, we too, they too are weighing and interpreting him. We're weighing right now in this room, 
Is this true? Can I trust Jesus? Was he really full of this kind of authority? Was his authority the power of God or was his authority from somewhere else? Here's a kind of a big point out of this text this morning. The reality is we live in one of two kingdoms. We live in one of two kingdoms. One kingdom brings wholeness and the other kingdom brings disintegration. One kingdom puts the world back together again. The other kingdom continues to disintegrate, destroy, and divide the world and the good creation that God has made. So in this text that I just read, we see two kingdoms. We see two monarchs, two rulers, and each kingdom is mutually exclusive. Look at the opening line in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now, in this instance, Matthew attributes this man's lack of speech and his lack of sight to demonic oppression. But the scriptures don't say in every case that is the case. But we know in this context that this is the case. Jesus healed this man, and he was being oppressed by a demon. Now, Matthew records something that we cannot afford to miss. Jesus encounters this man. He can't see. He he can't talk. He heals him right there on the spot. And there's a principle for us to employ and to apply in our own lives, and it's this. Fight, fight, fight for a way of engaging your Bible, engaging the Scriptures, whether it's reading the Scriptures, whether it's listening to the Scriptures, however you're doing it, a way of engage, fight for a way of engaging the Scriptures that recognizes and lingers on the extraordinary substance of Jesus Christ. Try to notice how often Jesus seems to do things that go against the grain of the universe. When he is doing extraordinary things, don't just like become so familiar. May we not become so familiar with that that we just pass over it. But may we, like these people, respond in awe and in amazement here. So try to recognize how Jesus seems to go against the grain of the way that our world works and adjust our thinking. That's the principle. May we adjust our thinking to what the scriptures hold up to be true. Jesus, his way actually goes with the grain of the way things were made. It's our way that goes against the grain. The way that God made things, Jesus is coming back into a disordered and disintegrated world, and he's putting things back together again. Jesus is actively alive and reaching into our world and into our paradigm, bringing his kingdom, and he's bringing healing. He's bringing wholeness. He's putting his world progressively back together again. That's the work that the kingdom of God does. It's us who are going against the grain. Eugene Peterson made this he popularized this, and it's just, it's, it's a phrase that is stuck in my head, that God made, made the grain to work in one direction, and when we go against his grain, we get splinters. When we go against the grain of the way God made things, we get splinters. There's a crowd around Jesus, and they seem to really get this one right. They are all amazed here, and they respond with expectation in their hearts. They're Literally, we see on the pages here, as they are all amazed, we see their faith challenging their doubt, actively challenging their doubt. Can this be the son of David? This phrase, it's a a title that is popular and is attributed to Jesus, and it's pregnant with meaning for first century Jews. 
King David lived about a thousand years before Jesus, and God promised that one would come from his lineage who would, who would sit on his throne and who would rule and who would deliver Israel from their enemies. And in Jesus' day here, the Jews are expecting that, that those enemies that they will be delivered from will be the Greeks and will be the Romans and essentially will be anybody who does not bow the knee to Yahweh. What they fail to see and what we often fail to see is that Jesus Christ was coming to deliver us from an even greater enemy, Satan, his kingdom, our sin, our, our guilt, our fear, our shame. He was coming to deliver us from an even greater enemy. And so Jesus in this moment, he heals this guy who really needs it. And these everyday folks, they lose their minds here and they rejoice. But when the Pharisees see it, when they hear about it, we don't see their faith challenging their doubt. We see pervasive anti-faith. This isn't the son of David making people whole. Are you kidding me? The prince of demons is deceiving you. This is a charade. That's what they are bringing forth here. And they, they say that it's by the power of Beelzebul. It's this this odd name that reaches way back into the Old Testament and one of Israel's surrounding nations who had a God that was frequently called Beelzebul, or you'll see it described as Beelzebub in the scriptures. It's this satanic character who is deeply embedded in popular Jewish culture by this time when Jesus is encountering these Pharisees. And in the New Testament, Beelzebub, or Beelzebul is almost always used to identify Satan himself. This name, literally, when, when transliterated, it means Lord of the Flies. Now, when I say that, you think about a movie or you think about a book that you've seen with a bunch of kids who are abandoned on an island, no adults in play, things start out good, but eventually these kids start to turn on themselves, turn on one another, and it eventually leads to the death of one of them and it's total chaos and disintegration and disorder. Lord of the Flies, this name of Beelzebul literally means Lord of the manure pile. Where do flies congregate? Meaning that this Satan character, this satanic being is despicable and deplorable and brings destruction and there's nothing good in him. Look at this in the scriptures here. The Pharisees do not, they don't deny that Jesus has power to cast out demons, they deny his truthfulness in doing so. They see it. They see deliverance happening, but they deny Jesus' truthfulness in doing so. They accuse Jesus of being aligned with a demon, which if they're wrong, is actually a serious crime punishable by death in their own culture. Blasphemy. I'll get to that and define it a little bit. Look at verse 25. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Jesus knows their thoughts here. He outmatches their logic. It's another helping of extraordinary Jesus for you and I to consider on the pages of scripture. 
He understands that a house divided against itself, a community divided against itself, a family divided against itself cannot stand. Civil wars weaken and destroy kingdoms. Civil wars weaken and destroy nations. Civil wars weaken and destroy communities and families and friendships. They do not strengthen them. We might recover after a civil war and become a strong nation, like in the case of the United States, we have. But civil wars always weaken the communities that they touch. On June 16, 1858, Abraham Lincoln, before he became president and before the Civil War broke out, it was still years from, a few years from breaking out, he gives a speech where he's seeking the Republican nomination for his party at the time. And this speech is famous in America's collective history because it's called A House Divided. That's the name of this speech where Abraham Lincoln takes its title takes the title of this and the central idea right from this place in Jesus's ministry. And even Abraham Lincoln's friends at that time thought that this speech was way too radical, that he was inciting problems and divisions. But he saw something that was about to occur a long ways out, and he begins to call the United States and to call his party to look closely at this. And here's the central idea and the central quote from his speech. He says this, in my opinion, it, the it that he means here is slavery-based division, will not cease. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure, he said, permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other thing. A house divided against itself, a nation divided against itself, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus' point is that if he cast out this demon oppressing this man, through the power of Satan, if, he, if Jesus is using the power of Satan, then eventually whatever he is trying to do will ultimately fail. Why? Because he would be working against himself. The real point here, the real question that Jesus is trying to put to the Pharisees is, by what actual power am I doing these things? Actually, what power is empowering me? Are they, are the Pharisees, are we failing to recognize this, this arrival of a new age? And in the Pharisees and the Jews' um, point of view, it's the one that they've been looking for since the garden. It's, it's this messianic age, one coming who would deliver Israel from their enemies. And that is the question to answer. By what actual power is Jesus doing these things? It's the question for them, and it's the question for you and I to answer again and again. When Jesus' kingdom is breaking in on us, when his spirit is at work in us, all of life, I'm talking to you, if you're a part of this community, are we trained on him and tuned to him so that we will see and recognize him at work among us? Will we know it's him? How will we know? 
If you look closely at movements of God throughout history, whether they're revivals or revivals, right? Revival is, there's nothing to be revived there. Somebody comes uh, from deadness to life, they're converted for the very first time, or a revival is a, a time in world history where the people, the sleepy people of God are awakened. Whether, when, you, when we look at movements of God throughout history, one of the things that they always have in common is commotion. When God is moving among his people, there is a kind of wildness to these times. People are wrestling. Things are happening that are making people very uncomfortable. Even, I don't think it's too strong to say oftentimes, especially um, in the West, uh, they've been times of, of some communal chaos. There's just all kind of, like, I don't mean chaos in a negative way. I just mean like there's just stuff spontaneously happening. And the central organizer of all of that movement is the spirit of God himself. It's not necessarily an aligned in one direction people, although people are getting saved, they're getting delivered, things are happening, they're being healed. I, I want to I ask this question. I want to put this question to us. Would we welcome this demon-oppressed man into our community if he came to us? Or would we cast him out and miss the demon that was oppressing him? I, I'm, I'm searching my own heart in relation to this, going, like, I like things tidy. I like things predictable. I don't like conflict. I don't love it. I actually hate it. I don't move away from it as best as I can, but I hate it whenever it comes. And so I like things predictable. Uh, 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 the founder of the Vineyard Movement, he's a guy named John Wimber. Uh, he has this quote. I'm not a follower of his, but uh, I have, he, there's this quote that, that I heard in a podcast recently, and it's just been kind of churning in my mind. And he says this. He says, there's order in the cemetery and there is chaos in the nursery. One is real tidy and dead. One is chaotic and there's movement, but it's brimming with life. All of life, are we more? Are we moving in the direction more of the cemetery? And the order that we like and the things that we like them, the way that we like them to be, are we moving more toward an openness to the Spirit of God that he can move and he can do with us what he wants? We will respond. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This word cast out means to forcefully thrust out. If that's true, if it's by the Spirit of God that, that, that I do these things, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It must mean something. What does it mean? It means that the kingdom of God has literally come upon you. It's come into your midst. Jesus is saying that I am from God. I represent God. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is working through Jesus, using him for his glory. And so the question for us as we encounter some of these questions in this, this um, story in Scripture, which is history, we ask, do, did Jesus really do these things? Ask yourself if you believe that. Is this myth? Are, is it just some nice tales meant to teach a moral story? Or do you believe that Jesus was actually a member of the human race, still is, actually, the man who is God, 
Did he really do these things? Does, does he really have this kind of power? If so, where does the power come from? Is it from the demonic realm or is it from the power of God? I love this. In verse 28, I missed it initially, but I came to see all three members of the Trinity at work here. Uh, if it is by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the Father, that I, Jesus, do these things. The Trinity is embedded in verse 28. And the result, the purpose clause here is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, which means that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in perfect community, perfect alignment in the way that the kingdom of God is coming. I love it. Jesus, in this moment, he rebuts these Pharisees and he asserts that while Satan has authority over the earth, he's been given some dominion over the earth, Jesus has actually invaded and overpowered this strong man in his realm. Jesus actively sees himself, not just then, but also today because he is alive. He sees himself as actively plundering Satan. He's actively entering into this domain and rescuing people out of it at will. Do you believe this? That Jesus Christ is at work among us and at work in this community through the people of God and at work beyond this community the world over. Verse 30, Jesus moves himself explicitly into this place of bringing the kingdom of God. He says, look at this, whoever is Whoever is not with me, me, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me, scatters. He's not talking about location here. Rather, the idea is there's no middle ground on Jesus. That's the idea that he's bringing forward here. Uh, he, we either are moving toward the Lord Jesus Christ or we're moving away from him in our daily decisions and in the way that we relate to him. Our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions display this. Between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, there is no Switzerland. There's no neutral place between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We're either one, part of one or we're part of the other. A theologian named Paul McCain says this, Jesus is clear. You're either with him or you are against him. You either belong to Christ or you belong to Satan. Now, a few people today would have the nerve to assign Jesus's work to Satan, like the people in that crowd on that day. But many would deny that he is, that Jesus is God's unique son, the only name in heaven by which men may be saved. This amounts to a rejection of Jesus. This amounts to scattering. As we move into verses 31 and 32, these are two of the New Testament's most perplexing verses. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. These are perplexing verses. It's thrown uh, an abundance of people into inner crisis, into uh, 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 an abundance of confusion with an endless string of what-if scenarios. What-if scenarios are great. Hypothetical scenarios are great. If you're learning like military preparedness or survival skills, or you're a new parent with a new baby at home and you're trying to keep this little thing alive, right? We have to anticipate what if such and such happens, then how will we move and how will we respond? But in, in, in the case of Matthew 12, 31 and 32, I don't think that we can hang out, we can afford to hang out long in the what if zone. 
we need to do some business with this text and try to come to understanding what does it mean? Especially, and this is a pastoral moment for you, if you recognize that you struggle with this, your assurance, if you have some sort of anxiousness about your place in the kingdom of God, you worry about doubting, you, you, you worry and you doubt about your place in his kingdom, your place in his family, then pastorally, I want to help you stabilize right now. I'm just gonna reach into church history for just a moment. I'm gonna quote, Mar I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote Martin Luther quoting Augustine. So this is like a theological 24-ounce Red Bull. He says this, if you are worried that you have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, you have not. Augustine in the fourth century, Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 1500s, Matthew Henry, a commentator on the scriptures, reliable. He says, those who fear they have committed the unforgivable sin, give a good sign they have not. A theologian named A.H. McNeil, the sin against the Holy Spirit is not careless acts. It is a hardened state. Is that you? If it is not you, my anxious friend, my worrying friend, you are okay. Settle down, hang with us, and let's find out, let's figure out what this is. Because we want to know what it is, right? So that we don't step into it, so that we don't commit it. Now, blasphemy is a sin that is committed with words, either spoken words or written words. Blasphemy is something that we communicate Jesus does not say blasphemy is unforgivable. He says blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. Actually, Paul, the Apostle Paul himself, called himself, he said, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent of Jesus Christ. And what do we know about Paul? That he was graciously forgiven and brought, brought into the family of God. To blaspheme means, at a, at a real high level, we could probably get more nuanced on this, more technical on this, but at a high level, to blaspheme means to speak irreverently or in an anti kind of a way about God or sacred things. So quickly here, I want us to remember for a moment who God is and who he has been throughout world history. So real quick survey, real quick survey of your Old Testament. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God speaking about himself, the Lord, the Lord. Who is he? He's a God merciful and gracious. He's a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So look at the shortness of his wrath versus the length of his steadfast love. Thousands of generations, three or four generations. Second Chronicles 39, 30 verse 9. The Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. He's calling us to turn to him regardless. Daniel 9, 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him. Now, if you're wondering, is the God of the Old Testament, he seems a little different than the God of the New Testament. No, 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 same same, same, same. Consistent throughout history. Ephesians. Now we're turning into the New Testament. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God being what? Rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Or Colossians 3, 13. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also image him. So you must also forgive. The 
that, that's who God is. I want to just like settle, like we need to see the character and the nature of God. This is who he is. Um, this is who he is consistently and overwhelmingly presented as in the Old and New Testaments. The unforgivable sin, though, of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it's spoken of in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel. So all three synoptic gospels speak of this moment. Luke kind of detaches it from this context here and offers it a little bit later in his gospel in chapter 12. But Matthew and Mark, it's really interesting, I've been learning this this week, they anchor it in this specific text in this uh, in this interaction with the Pharisees where these Pharisees are accusing Jesus of using demonic power to heal and Mark chapter 3 verse 30 adds this really clarifying detail they were saying he does it because he has an unclean spirit essentially the Pharisees were willfully and intentionally resisting the Holy Spirit's work through Jesus plain and simple they were against it they were absolutely opposed to Jesus and everything that he was doing. And after his resurrection and after Jesus' so his death, his resurrection and his ascension, the Pharisees will still continue to oppose his mission, to oppose his message as they begin to encounter his apostles. They put a guy named Stephen to death by throwing rocks at him, by stoning him, who was known among all of his peers, was known among the church as being full of the Holy Spirit. And right before his death, Stephen rebukes these Pharisees who are opposing him. He, he, he rebukes them stiffly. And he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Brood of vipers, sons and daughters of snakes before Based on the context of Matthew 12 and Mark 3, I'm going to just like try to define as clearly as I can what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Jonathan Pennington, he's a professor and pastor. This is how he says it, and I agree. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a specific, active, and final choice to declare the person and work of Jesus as being demonic in origin. Do you want clarity on what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is? I think that's as clear as we can possibly get. Another author says this, those who commit the unpardonable sin decisively reject clear spirit-revealed truth about Jesus by attributing his mighty works to Satan. They decisively reject Jesus because they never repent. They continue to rebel against Jesus until they die. Instead of submitting to who Jesus is and recognizing that the Spirit empowered Jesus' mighty works, they rebel against Jesus by declaring that Jesus empowered his mighty works. The unpardonable sin is not an accidental, impulsive, or unguarded slip of the tongue. It is deliberately repudiating the truth about Jesus. So this is a sin that only unbelievers can commit. If you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying. Jesus in verse 33 then, he calls these Pharisees to convert, to repent. He calls them to come to him. We often assign this passage, and I do it, we assign it a more general treatment and interpretation, which is, is great. It's not wrong. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth does speak, the life is lived. 
Like it has context for us, an application for us beyond how it's anchored in this moment. But I want us to pay close attention to this context because we will have better clarity about what Jesus is saying here. We'll be better students of the scriptures. Jesus is speaking very directly to the Pharisees about a very specific thing that they're doing. He's calling them to convert. He's calling them to submit to him, but they're condemning him. A call to conversion is a call to change. It's a call to transformation. He's saying, you got to decide. Either either the tree is good or the tree is bad. Tree being a a symbol here for a person. I want to say this. Jesus is not a fatalist. And we are not either. Meaning you and I have not been assigned some fate and we're just robotically like moving our way to the end until we drop off the cliff. That's not what... Jesus is doing. That's not who we are. We have wills. We have volition. People can change. People can respond. Hard hearts can soften. The soft can firm up. The kind of person you and I are is showing up. Ask the people around you what kind of a person you are, what kind of fruit you're bearing, and if they are not afraid of you, I hope they are not. They will give you a true answer and you will have better data. Jesus puts his finger in the Pharisees' collective chest and he calls them a bunch of snakes. He calls them evil. He says, your actions and your words show your credential. They show who you are, what you are, what direction they're aiming their life. These Pharisees are bad trees in need of radical conversion. I want to say this. There are some people that gentleness will not wake up. There are some people that gentleness will not wake up. Only hard hearts, or hard words rather, can make their hard hearts soften. A one-size-fits-all approach to discipleship does not fit everyone. Jesus here in this moment is skilled. He's wise. He's discerning. He offers gentleness to the weary, but stiff rebuke to the calloused. And the more that we hang around Jesus, the more, and the more that you and I will develop, acquire wisdom, develop skill and exercise discernment. We'll close here in just a moment. Jesus is the best disciple maker in the world. No one has a longer line of disciples behind them than the Lord Jesus Christ. So what you and I can do is watch him and listen to him and try on his way of life. We learn his way of life by spending time with him through his word. We have his spirit who is helping us understand his word and leading us into progressively his way of life. It's slow, painfully slow. Click, 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 click. One of those is like a year, feels like. But he is working with his people. He's working with us. His invitation in chapter 11, verse 39 is, come to me and what? Learn. Come and learn my ways. How do you and I learn from Jesus? He's not here. I don't see him in the flesh like I can see a mentor. Wait, wait, wait. He has given us his spirit who does empower his miracles and his discernment and his skill with people and his wisdom. And that same spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity is at work in you and I leading us in the very same direction. You know how some people are really influential? 
what do young girls do when they see their favorite gymnast or they, they, they hear their favorite pop singer, right? They imitate or young guys, like when they see their favorite YouTubers like Dude Perfect or their favorite athletes, what do they do? They go out and they like work the plays or do, do the things, right? They, they imitate. We have a phrase that's new in our culture because of social media. There are people that we call influencers now on social media. Why do we call them that? Because the masses imitate them. They wear the things and buy the things and do the things and and say the things. But Jesus doesn't advise us on a handbag or a handgun. He's not trying to just like hawk some wares to us. He is an altogether different category of, kind, of, of being here. He gives new hearts. He teaches a new way of life. He teaches us how to love God. The scriptures say that he pours his love into our hearts. And as his love in Romans 5 is poured into our hearts, we turn that back to him and begin to love him. He pours his love into our hearts and we take that love and we begin to pour it out to people around us. It's an unnatural kind of love to us. He teaches us how to love people that we're not naturally naturally disposed to love. We're not naturally inclined to to love. He teaches us by his spirit in us how to go with the grain of the universe that he has created. He is moving us in a new direction. We were going against the grain, getting all kinds of splinters, and now we are moving with his kingdom and his movement and how he is going. But like the Pharisees, people like the Pharisees in this account who attribute the work of God to Satan, they will get splinters. They will be judged for careless words. What they do with Jesus will be the basis on which they are judged. An early church father, John Chrysostom, said, the hidden fountain behind wicked words is the corrupted heart. Our words and our way of life show which kingdom we are most allegiant to. Now, one last thing, one paragraph, and I'm done. Uh, By your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. This trips us up here. What does Jesus mean? People's words will be the outward evidence of their inward character. Justified here means shown to be righteous. It does not, this is not justified in the sense that Paul uses it as declared to be righteous. Meaning your words will show what's really there. Your words will evidence what's really there. And it's by those careless words that we will be judged. People Uh, the, the, The people of God will escape the judgment of God. So you need to hear that, follower of Jesus. You don't have to worry about all your words and all your careless little phrases when you're a middle schooler or a 75-year-old. You don't have to worry about you don't have to worry about all that stuff getting shown on a screen and you being shamed in front of. That's not the heart of God. He is is going to declare his people to be righteous and he is going to deliver us. Anyone who believes in me will never be put to shame. He's not going to just work us through this life and then shame us in front of the multitudes. We can trust the heart of God. Come and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Take my yoke upon yourself and learn from me. My burden is light and my yoke is easy. Let's give him thanks. Father, we we love you. We... um, uh, while this is heady and while this is technical and while this is a warning to your people and a warning to those who are unbelievers, we ask, Holy Spirit, that this teaching 
from your scriptures finds its way and edifies your people. So help it to land on us and and nourish us in the way that you mean it to. In Jesus' name, amen.